welcome to another magical Saturday stream. I am your host, Joe Magician, today in some fly. God, that's that makes me sound so old. I actually just said the word fly. I'm a nice, colorful Hawaiian shirt, as I was always meant to be. Today, we're going to be going back to talk about the high towers, more the modern high towers, a little bit of the dance. On the last stream, we went all through their old history. We talked about the myths and legends surrounding them, what's in the world of ice and fire, what they say about themselves, what everyone else says about themselves. Spoiler alert, I concluded they are ancient pirates that reform themselves to make themselves look respectable. Headcanon, just accept it, it's true. It's better than the other ones where it's just like, oh, vague connections to ancient civilizations. This one's way more interesting and makes for their oncoming storm of Euron Greyjoy a lot more intriguing. We're going to dive into the Dance of the Dragons. We're going to talk about the fallout from the Dance of the Dragons. Not go well for the High Towers. Then we'll be talking about sort of the interlude, what they've been doing in A Song of Ice and Fire, and Into the Winds of Winter, what's going to happen when Euron Greyjoy comes knocking on the walls of the High Tower. Not going to be great for him. Before we get going, though, I wanted to say thank you to Mona Radu, sent 20 pounds before the stream started. Happy Saturday. Happy Saturday to you as well. Danny McKay sent $5 through PayPal. The links are in the description for that one. Another... Peace sign and happy Saturday. Right back at you, buddy. And a $10 super sticker from Maura Lee with a pair saying number one fan. So thanks for that, you guys. High Towers are obviously going to be a huge part of House of the Dragon, notably Otto, Hightower, and Allison, but obviously Allison's children, Aegon II, Aemon, Daron, Elena, the whole thing. It's, it's, it's going to be a big meso High Tower. So get ready for that one. But they also have a role to play in A Song of Ice and Fire, kind of a weirdly like subtly important one where they have accidentally pushed the story forward in a very intriguing way, notably through the Ness Hightower. Nobody saw that one coming. Oh, thank you for the super chat from Kieran Grant, $10. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Yeah, I got an opening quote for you, and I think this one is actually very instructive for House of the Dragon, and I wonder if they're going to put it in, if this history is going to make it. And it has to do with what the High Towers did when Aegon the Dragon landed in Westeros and how the high towers essentially noped out of the conflict and bent the knee pretty much instantly. The quote goes, Yet when Aegon Targaryen and his hosts approached Old Town, they found the city gates open and Lord Hightower waiting to make his submission. As it happened, when words of Aegon's landing first reached Old Town, the High Septon had locked himself within the Starry Sept for seven days and seven nights, seeking after the guidance of the gods. He took no nourishment but bread and water, it was said, and spent all his waking hours in prayer moving from one altar to the next. And on the seventh day, the crone had lifted her golden lamp to show him the path ahead. If Old Town took up arms against Aegon the Dragon, his High Holiness saw, the city would surely burn, and the High Tower and the Citadel and the Starry Sept would be cast down and destroyed. So that's what George wants us to know about what happens when High Towers go to war against the dragons, or just kind of in general. It's... It's one of those interesting things where it does read like a prophecy, but it also totally squares with their behavior before this, where this is what they did when the Andals arrived. This is what they did when the gardeners came knocking. It was just like, yeah, we're not going to fight. We're going to make a good deal for ourselves and survive. I know their long standing strategy, but it also works as interesting foreshadowing for them. And in particular, again, as we're talking about with House of the Dragon, with the High Tower Targaryens going to war against the Aaron Targaryens. That's kind of what Rhaenyra is. Her mother was an Aaron, I believe. So kind of fascinating. So let's, let's, let's go ahead. We talked about the dance beginning a lot 
in the whose fault was the dance of the dragons talking about allison and otto where i laid a lot of blame particularly at otto hightower himself that the reason for the conflict is really otto trying to seize the iron throne for his grandchildren for really no particular reason other than it seems that he thought it would be a good thing to do like Maybe he disliked Rhaenyra personally and he thought Damon might kill him, but it's it really just seems like a naked power grab from Otto Hightower, who is notably not Lord of the Hightower. I made this mistake before that Otto is just a knight. He's the brother of the Lord of the Hightower, so he doesn't really have anything for himself. He became Hand of the King for Jaehaerys and then decided, oh, Jaehaerys in his old age and decided, what? I'm going to make something of my lineage. We're going for the Iron Throne, baby. And Otto and through his, his apprentice, obviously, Allison, as we saw in the trailers, that they're definitely playing up the idea that Allison is sort of a Cersei Mark II, where the training or the indoctrination from Tywin and Otto into both of their daughters really shaped their worldview and how they tried to, I guess, play the quote unquote Game of Thrones. They largely used unhappiness with Rhaenyra personally, that she had bastard children that um, she had spurned quite a lot of suitors in her time, that she was going to be a woman on the Iron Throne, and kind of use that to create the, the seeds of their side, basically. That, they would, that those are the reasons that they really pushed the rest of the lords in order to rise up in rebellion against Rhaenyra with the death of Viserys. And again, I use that quote at the beginning on purpose, that George has <laughs> saying for the High Towers that if they go to war, they're going to pay for it. and. A lot of their a lot of their history has made the point that they are most successful when they basically just like turtle up and stay out of wars. That was basically their deal with the gardeners for thousands of years. The gardeners would go to war against the Stormlanders and the Westernmen and the Dornish, and the High Towers would stay at home and make money and make sure that nobody went up the honey wine and started raiding. And that was kind of the deal. They had really pivoted away, it seems, from a conquest and likely piracy very early on in their time as a house they had decided that this was the way to go slow economic advancement cultural and political protections to make them a juggernaut in westeros generation after generation largely because they never spent their their capital they didn't go to war they didn't send their armies out it's easy to stay strong when you never have to use the stuff you've amassed that's kind of how they go they just they don't join in or they don't start conquest they don't go to war with their neighbors. They don't seize lands. Although that is kind of probably a broad generalization. There surely would have been soldiers who joined in like the Dornish Wars or against the Stormlanders at some point. We're seeing in A Dance with Dragons and the Winds of Winter that obviously the high towers are going to war. So it does happen sometimes, but it's rarely like the entire house calling their banners and, go and going to fight everybody like that doesn't usually happen for them. And in that sense, the dance in Otto Hightower's actions marks a sharp departure for them. They are going against not only the, the prophecy of the High Septon that George has framed this all in, but they're going against largely their historical strategies. You, the idea that you dance with the dragons and you end up burned. Literally in the case of Aegon II. Spoilers. Also, by the way, there's going to be a lot of spoilers for House of the Dragon. Probably not season one, but definitely like season two and onwards and what we're talking about here. Checking in with the Magic Joe extravaganza. Thanks, Arius Josh. Yeah, Otto was definitely reaching beyond his grasp. He was, and as a result, he kind of pulled the rest of the family with him. The rest of the High Towers didn't really 
they saw the opportunity all went for it and a lot of them paid with their lives for Otto's greed basically to put his grandson on the iron throne so I'm not going to go like hugely into the details of what happens in the dance of the dragons like point by point because if I do that I'm going to continue talking basically until Monday and I don't really want to do that so we're going to focus really on what's happening with the high towers in particular in the dance kind of in a broad sense I believe history of Westeros has a really good like step-by-step -step series if you want to see a very detail-oriented looking the dance of the dragons i would check them out i may do one in the future myself actually i probably will but that's not really what we're going to go for today also obviously season one of house of the dragon is coming out in a little bit under two months so that's going to be they're going to say a lot of this anyway so all right too long didn't read what happened at the start of the dance otto and allison tried for a quick coup that would see rhaenyra surrender without fighting seating Alicent's firstborn son, Aegon, on the Iron Throne, and they wanted to primarily either force Rhaenyra to surrender early on, or they wanted to kill them. They wanted to assassinate their enemies so there would not be a, a long, a long drawn-out war, as obviously dragon-on-dragon -dragon combat is not great. It can work, but predictably, both sides end up killing each other a lot. There's no way to have a crushing victory with a dragon. It is just going to be a long, drawn-out mess, and everybody's going to get hurt. Lee Rubensel says the High Towers only commit to the dance. Either do no, they do, they do. We're going to get to that. Ormond High Tower, Rose, the Force of the High Tower, and Old Town behind Aegon the Second. Sorry, you can't get your super chats through Charlie J. That's a bummer. There's PayPal in the description if you want to send it that way, I guess. But I'm more than happy that you're just sitting here, hanging out, and having a good time more than more than anything. So. Oh, I forgot about the likes thing. So we're at 41 likes. We have 80 people watching. We get to 75 likes. I will throw on a silly wizard hat, which will clash hugely with my amazing Hawaiian shirt. And that's kind of what we see from the start of the dance. For instance, Sir Eric Cargyle of the Kingsguard is famously sent onto Dragonstone to impersonate his twin, his twin brother, Eric Cargyle, in order to assassinate Rhaenyra and or her children to end the war very quickly. It doesn't end up work. Obviously, the Cargyle twins end up killing each other, but that's not the only attempt. And there's a, there's a shadow war and a political war that happens before like the fighting breaks out in a sense. And that was largely the purpose of Allison and Otto having the a Green Council after Viserys' death. That there was a lot of secrecy. They kept his death secret. Boy, that was a terrible sentence I just said. In order to try and get ahead of Rhaenyra to get allies to possibly strike first when they weren't ready for it and also try to limit the scope of the oncoming conflict. This goes sideways on them fast. As I said, Eric Cargyle fails an assassination attempt. Other attempts to get at them really don't work. The very quickly Rhaenyra's side go like, oh yeah, they're going to try and murder us. So they get a little wise to it. Then Otto goes out and tries to scoop up all the allies they can. And they get quite a few, but largely George has designed it so the Dance of the Dragons is more or less equal between the Greens and the Blacks. Both of them end up with large followers on, e on either side, massive armies that end up smashing into each other. Otto's plan to try and diplomatically crush Rhaenyra ahead of time really fails. And a lot of that actually has to do with Aegon II himself. After he's, after Otto and Allison declare him to be they're going to make him king. Aegon, as it turns out, is actually not a particularly good choice to be king himself. He's he's kind of foolish. He's very what's the right word? What's the right word for it? He's kind of aggressive. 
kind of foolhardy. Like there was a reason that he wasn't in the green council on his own planning this. It got shoved on him that he's not really a good choice for a king. He has a lot more in common with someone like Joffrey than like, or what's his name or Aegon the fourth than anything. He's just kind of, he's very impulsive. And there's a, there's a quote from the show that they didn't use in the books, but it's actually a good one. It's from Tyrion. He's talking about Joffrey to Cersei and he says, it's hard to put a leash on a dog after you put a crown on its head. And that's more or less what goes on with Aegon the second auto attempts behind the scenes to gain widespread support. He ends up getting obviously the high towers, the Lannisters and the Baratheons, but he can't, there's a really not that far. You can push it. You'll notice missing from that list are other major houses, the Tyrells, the Tullys, the Aarons, the Starks, the Martells all do not end up pulling for the, the greens. Yeah, that's right. Mark Agrippa. He's a prince who never thought expected to be king suddenly thrust into the throne in his early twenties. Exactly right. And there's a reason nobody really wanted Aegon the second to be king. Otto just wanted his grandson and didn't really care anything else about that. The Tyrells in particular here are an enormous loss for the high tower side and the green side that they could not convince their overlords in order to declare for Aegon because as we've seen in basically every other war in Westeros where the reach goes, these massive wargs go. They have so many troops, so many resources, so much food, so much political and military might that whoever gets the reach really dictates where the war is going. And the Tyrells instead basically tap out. They say, we're not going to do it. Huge loss for the high towers. Maybe Otto could have eventually gotten to the point where he got them on their side. But a pro again, the problem with Aegon being impulsive is that he refused to wait. And he forced them to crown him before Otto was ready, wheeling and dealing. And that unfortunately, the public declaration of Aegon as king gives Rhaenyra time to send out calls for support from everyone that swore to defend her to Viserys. Yeah, it, it, re it really screws up Otto's plans that Aegon is not a particularly good king. Why Tyrells of the time stayed so passive in the war, says Nikola Ranovich. We'll get to that. There's, there's a definite reason why they refuse, but it's a huge deal that the Greens do not get the Tyrells. It's almost like Aegon's merits as king were overlooked by his mother and grandfather because they just wanted their bloodline on the throne for personal reasons and for, and decided that Daemon was going to murder them. So yeah, you, you kind of, they, they lashed their cart to an unstable horse, I guess. And as the war goes on, or as the war begins, Otto's alliance building and diplomacy trying to win the war with his quill was very much too slow for the dragon riding Aegon, who wanted to, you know, win battles and wanted to use Dret and wanted to use, oh God, what's his dragon's name? Aegon second. I can't believe I just forgot his dragon's name. Sunfire. That's it. Sunfire. He wanted to use Sunfire. He wanted to use his dragons. He wanted to win. He wanted to win the civil war. He didn't want to win it with a with a quill like Otto was. So Otto eventually gets fired as Hand of the King, and instead he names Kristen Cole as Hand of the King. Boy, is that a shitty idea. If you're looking for, I'm talking about the Godfather a lot in these streams, but you can imagine Aegon II as Sonny Corleone or Corleone, and the scene where he's very angry at Tom Hagen being passive and telling him not to go to war. And then Sonny basically says he wishes he had a wartime concierge. Basically the same thing here. I would imagine that George may have drawn on that scene explicitly. Sonny and Aegon II are very similar in characters, minus the dragons. This goes, this makes things go really sideways for Aegon's cause, because at this point, 
they're not really building alliances anymore. They're not building political and military capital. They're spending it. Because that's what Kristen does. He spends it. Yes, on fire. <laughs> Whoops-a-daisy. And Kristen Cole is not a particularly good commander, and he's not a good politician. He's a guy that's good in the tourney ring, and he's Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, but that's that's kind of it. The war goes really bad once Kristen's in, in command. And part of the reason, is, of course, is that Kristen's reason for joining the Greens is that it's intensely personal reason. Go watch The Godfather. What are you guys doing? It's a really good movie. But yeah, Sonny Corleone and uh, Aegon II, pretty similar characters. But yeah, all of Kristen's decisions are fueled by anger and revenge rather than like trying to win. So he makes a lot of stupid mistakes and he makes a lot of very impulsive decisions that Aegon agrees with that ends up screwing over the Greens. Yeah, Cole sucks. Matthew says, could the Greens make their case with the Great Council? No, they effectively are staging a, a realm-wide Great Council with the declaration of Aegon as the new king. And basically half the realm says, nah. Or more of it, actually. The reach is really divided. So Allison and Otto start this and then very quickly lose control of it. Allison, in particular, she gets sidelined even harder than Aegon does. I mean, even, even harder than Otto does. Joffrey's treatment of Cersei post being crowned is informative in this. Uh, also, a little bit Rob and Catelyn. It's kind of the same sort of thing where it's a sudden king doesn't want to be seen to be controlled by their mom. So they... Do everything they can to push them aside, even though Otto and Allison were basically the Greens' biggest and best resources in terms of how to navigate this war and politically. And Aegon just basically tells them to get bent. Not great. Yeah, so things don't go pretty badly for the High Towers pretty fast as a family. Blood and Cheese is one of the initial ones that's really not great. The murder of Aegon's son, Jaehaerys. You see Aemond, Aemond One-Eye, he goes on a killing spree with Vhagar, killing one of the strong boys. Also, there's kind of burning and attacking wherever he can, eventually hooking up with Alice Rivers. But notably, actually, somebody in the chat asked about this. For one of the first times ever <laughs> that this has not really happened before, all of House Hightower declares for the Greens. The main house is on board. A sharp sharp departure from their normal operating strategy now okay so hang on a second it's not unusual that they declare for a war but it's very unusual that they do anything <laughs> they often will say yeah we got your backs don't worry about it we're on your side and then do literally nothing for the rest of the war and then surrender quickly to whoever ends up winning that's kind of their strategy and it kind of surprises everyone it surprises the rest of the reach it surprises the rest of westeros they're like what the hell what are the high towers doing why they're massing troops. They never mass troops. They usually just send ships or money or words of support and then just kind of duck out. They're not doing that this time. And notably, they take on Prince Daron on his dragon, Tessarion. He ends up being a big part of the Hightower offensive. Well, it's hard to even describe what it is. It really doesn't go well. But again, remember that quote, if Old Town took up arms against Aegon the Dragon, his High Holiness saw the city would surely burn the Hightower and the Citadel and Starry Seven be cast down and destroyed. Okay, the High Towers are now doing that. They are taking arms against the dragons. George has some foreshadowing for that. Mark Agrippa says, do you think Rhaenyra would have killed Aegon and his family if she took the throne like Cole told them when they crowned him? No, there's, there's no real indication that was going to happen. Like, Rhaenyra hated Alicent, but it's even in, informative that even after she captures Alicent, she isn't murdered. Otto is, obviously, as a traitor, but uh, like the killings, there's, it's hard to say why they 
were so certain a killing spree from Damon was coming. I mean, Rhaenyra could be selfish and she could think of herself, but she wasn't really a violent person. And Damon being king consort doesn't mean that he can just go around killing people willy-nilly. Like, he wasn't even doing that beforehand when he was crown prince, so it's hard to say what the hell Allison and Otto were thinking. I, I think the only explanation is that they, that they and Kristen Cole made it up to justify the case, that it was a power grab, and they were just like, well, we gotta go for it. The die is cast, basically. And like, if... <laughs> To be fair, if Rhaenyra had wanted to kill Allison, she had decades to do it, so don't really know what's going on there. There's certainly a case that Aemond and the Strong Boys were eventually probably going to fight each other in some way, but that's that's different than what uh, Kristen Cole was saying, that it was literally gonna, going to end up with a massacre of House Hightower at court. They would probably be sent away, but that's not the same thing. Patty Arulo says, my only conclusion can be that Otto and Allison were unpleasantly surprised when Aegon wanted an active part in ruling. They soon would be all them. Yeah, it seems clear that they were expecting to have a puppet king. And then, of course, that didn't end up going their way. The same thing happened with Joffrey. They were hoping for, and instead they got Joffrey. Whoops. Like, obviously, Rhaenyra would not keep Otto as Hand of the King, but that would be, that's to be expected. There's no way she was going to keep him on. And also, Rhaenyra didn't really have any particular animosity towards her half-siblings, basically. And Aegon says the same thing. He's like, yeah, she's going to be queen. I, I'm not really worried about it. Like, things will be fine. That seems to be basically what's going to happen. It really seems to be a lie from Otto and Allison and Kristen just to justify what they're trying to do. So let's go ahead and talk about what's going on with the main house Hightower, because a lot, they kind of usually get lost when you're talking about analysis of the Dance of the Dragons, because the Targaryen half of the family really dominates the headlines, and it will in House of the Dragon as well, but the main house has an important role to play as well. At the start of the dance, we have Lord Ormond Hightower. He is the Lord of Old Town. And he had four children to start at the dance. He, Lionel, Martin, Garmond, and Bethany. He also has several cousins who are named during the conflict. You have Hobart, Brynden, and Miles Hightower. What we know about him is that his first wife had died, and then he had married the very young Samantha Tarley in a power marriage, who was 17 years old when they were married. Ormond's probably in his 30s or 40s at this point, maybe a little bit older. Who knows? The fact that Sam Tarley, Samantha Tarley, I'm sorry, it's kind of a funny thing that George did this. He included another Sam Tarley in the story, but instead made it into this interesting character, to say the least. If she makes it into the show, she's going to be popular. She is drama incarnate. But anyway, the, the fact that she's 17 years old comes becomes relevant later with the House Hightower. So what ended up happening is Ormond is the nephew of Otto Hightower. And when they declared a civil war, Otto convinces his nephew that... They can't just sit around and wait, that they need to push everything forward. They need to push their chips into the table. It's been thousands of years building power, building influence and soldiers, and now it's time to use them. And Ormond agrees, apparently. He commits all of, all of Old Town's power, might, and money to the war. And again, like I was talking about, in a very unusual move for the High Towers, he actually calls up his troops doesn't usually happen for them. The numbers we get is a thousand knights, a thousand archers, three thousand men at arms, and then of course thousands of farmers with pitchforks. He calls them all up, and not only that, 
Orman marches them out of Old Town Gates and marches to King's Landing with the intention of joining his strength with Aegon and becoming the primary force of the royal army. Pushing their chicken nuggets and soda pop into the pile. I've never heard that one before. That is a phrase. Very tempted to read Fire and Blood before the show, but it took me forever original. Yeah, it took me a long time to read it too. It's it's not really a narrative. It's more like a history book, so it can be a hard read. Am I high? No. No, I haven't been high in quite a long time. So, but the problem ends up becoming, I alluded to this earlier, the Tyrells. Remember how I said the Tyrells refused to support Aegon's cause and that was a huge problem? Well, it's be, there's a few reasons going on here and it ends up being vitally important to the Greens' downfall, even though as far as the war is concerned, the Tyrells never called up a single soldier. Officially, the Tyrells refused to join the war because their current lord was an infant, Lord Lionel Tyrell, like two or three years old or something like that. And his regents say that they can't go to war with a child in charge. It makes no sense. They're not doing it. What actually ends up happening is that the Tyrells support the blacks, but they don't want to do it openly because they fear fire and blood essentially descending on them from Aemond or Aegon, burning down the high, burning down High Garden, handing it over to Otto Hightower. It's very, very much on their minds, and it has been since they were made lords of High Garden following Aegon's conquest, that the High Towers have been chomping at the bit in order to become the new lords of the Reach. And this is the perfect war to do it. It not only sees the Iron Throne, but also sees High Garden and the Reach itself away from the Tyrells. And they they've been largely insecure at this point in their position, mostly backed up by the Targaryens. The Targaryens have used the Tyrells essentially as their puppet Reach Lords. And now that the Iron Throne is could possibly be against them, that protection could be removed. You could see a revolt within the Reach and the end of House Tyrell pretty quickly. Have we seen a single high tower in the main line of Song of Ice and Fire books? Yes. We have seen Ness. We've seen oh no, one less. Ness has been in memories. Gerald Hightower, kind of. And Samuel in Tarley's chapter, there is a high tower at the docks. And that's kind of it, I think. But anyway, so the rest of the Reach and particularly the Tyrells. Oh, yeah, we've seen a Larry. That's correct. The Tyrells and the rest of the Reach recognize the high tower power grab for what it is. They totally understand what's going on here. That there's a very good chance by the end of this war. The Tyrells end up, I mean, the High Towers end up Lords of the Reach and the Iron Throne at the same time. It's such a naked power grab. But there's there's a key part here, and something to remember is that the High Towers are not well liked within the rest of the Reach. Their extreme self-interest, their unwillingness to join wars is seen as cowardly. Their weird get out of war free card that they use, that they used on the gardeners, or they used the faith to justify it has really not curried them any favor throughout the rest of the Reach. They're powerful and they're rich, but they're not popular. And that's kind of how they like it. They like being at odds with everybody, but they have their high walls to make sure nobody can do anything to them. And they use the faith and the maesters and their political alliances to and power marriages in particular to make sure nobody messes with them. But it's quite clear that a lot of the other Reach lords would like to. They would like to knock the high towers down a peg or two. As such, it's it's kind of weird. It's almost like the rest of the Reach don't like being treated as mercenaries for the high tower interests. They don't like being essentially the border guards for Old Town. They want to be rich and powerful themselves. So I think the high towers are Valyrians. I don't know. They aren't Valyrians. No. As such, so let's play this out. Ormond Baratheon. I mean Ormond High Tower. Weird one there. Ormond Hightower 
gets his troops, marched out of Old Town, and is heading towards King's Landing. And what happens? The Reach Lords instantly attack. Lord Alan Tarley, despite being married to Sam Tarley, and Alan Beesbury both marshal their forces and attack and kill as many scouts and outriders as they can find from the High Tower column. Meanwhile, in beh- behind them, the Costains, under Lord Owen, cut their supply lines and attach and attack their baggage trains, essentially trying to stall out the high towers and not letting them reach Aegon the second. My PayPal is in the description if you want to try it out uh, for Charlie J. I don't know what's going on with why the thing's not working. That's a shame. Oh, by the way, also three more likes. I'm going to put on a silly hat. So slam that like button. Actually, I should, I should try and make like an ass waffle Hawaiian shirt. That'd be pretty amazing. I wonder if I can do that. I'm going to send Rick Seager and figure it out. Hang on a second. Yep. So pretty quick, quickly, the rest of the Reach Lords let the High Towers know what they think of them and begin openly attacking them. So the rest of the Reach Lords and by extension, the High Guard and the Tyrells are seeking to prevent the High Towers from merging their forces and probably outright winning the war very quickly. And it works very well. They bottle up the high tower forces they basically as far as i know i don't think they ever make it to king's landing and then along with those houses you also see the rowans and the caswells they manage to surround and pin orman and his forces at the honey wine river honey wine river ends up being the battle of the honey wine or whatever it's called and they were surrounded their backs were against the river it was looking like we were going to get a fish feed situation where the high tower forces were going to be totally wiped out Unfortunately, Prince Daron shows up on Hasarion the dragon, and he kills many of the attacking forces and frees the High Towers, and the High Towers win the day. Huzzah! They won the battle. Prince Daron is then called Daron the Daring, and he's knighted by Lord Ormond on the spot. Woo! Things are going great for the High Towers, right? They won this battle. They're going to get out of the reach. It, no, it doesn't... It, the damage is kind of done here. The High Tower armies take massive, massive losses at the Battle of the Honeywine, even though they won the day. Oh, we hit a uh, 75, so let's go ahead and throw on a hat. If we get to 100 likes, we'll give away a t-shirt from my Threadless shop. Which funny hat we putting on? I think it's wizard time. Oh, that looks a little strange. Nothing like a Hawaiian wizard, right? Thanks, guys, for slamming the leg button. It really does help with the algorithm and trying to make, pe- make sure people find everything. Hang on a second. Let me... One of the PayPal's. There you go. Waffle is the hottest trend among the youths. Damn right it is. Everybody wants to wear the ass waffle. It is kind of hard to wear this with the my uh, with my pop filter here. It kind of almost keeps hitting it. All right, so I guess I'm gonna have to sit up straight. There we go. All right. Things don't actually work out for the high towers. They never make it to King's Landing. They lose a lot of their troops. And although they have Daron the Daring with them now, they're delayed from joining with the royal army. And I think they don't. They don't even end up joining any royal army for the rest of the war. What ends up actually happening, rather than directly opposing Rhaenyra's main forces and taking back King's Landing or anything, is they end up just sort of going through the reach for the rest of the war, trying to beat up on the lesser houses to get them to ostensibly join the green side, but it doesn't really matter because they're doing it by force. So every ally they force to join them is not only unwilling, but they've, pro- they've lost troops and they're pretty unhappy about it. So this is like the first time in the story the High Towers go to war, and even though they won, it totally sucks for them. Yeah, things things do not go well, and the fate of the High Towers are not great. Ormond and his cousin Hobart both end up dying during the conflicts over Tumble, along with Brendan Hightower. I'm sorry of the f- of the four High Tower men we mentioned at the beginning. By the end of it, Ormond, Hobart, 
and Brendan are all dead. Ormond and Brendan die in the same battle, the second battle of Tumbleton. Roddy the Ruin, aka Roderick Dustin, praise be Roddy the Ruin. He's going to be an incredible character when he shows up. He shows up with the Winter Wolves and actually has his arm cut off by Brendan Hightower, who then doesn't even give a shit about it and keeps going, kills Brendan, then kills Ormond, winning the sec while well, being a primary part of winning the second battle of Templeton. Hobart Hightower ends up dying in a really weird way. The two betrayers, otherwise known as Ulf White and Hugh the Hammer, two dragon seeds that took up Silverwing and Jaharius's dragon. I forget its name. Generation's going to be so mad at me for forgetting the names of two dragons during a stream. Vermithor, there it is. Vermithor and Silverwing. Hobart ends up killing Ulf White by giving him poison wine. Ulf suspects, by the way, you probably poison this. So Hobart takes two drinks of it to convince Ulf, effectively committing suicide to kill the dragon rider. Although I, I looked up Roddy the Ruin while I was doing this, and Roddy is going to be incredible. He has some great lines. Like his best one is, I've come to die for the dragon queen. A plus, Roderick Dustin's going to be a badass. And we've never really seen the Dustins in the show. Lady Dustin was largely cut out and, oh no, she was cut out. I don't think she was even in the show at all. So Roderick Dustin's going to be incredible with the Winter Wolves and the Butcher's Ball and all and Fish Feed and all that stuff. It's going to be great. Praise be Roddy. <laughs> That'd be a good t-shirt. Praise Roddy. <laughs> Although that could be misunderstood. Mm. I just kind of skipped over a lot of the detail of the dance. But that's really the stuff to focus on, what's going on with the High Towers in particular, since this is the stream about the High Towers. The aftermath is real the aftermath of the dance is really, 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 really unkind to House High Tower. Things go terribly, terribly wrong for them. By the end of it, it's pretty horrific. Otto ends up beheaded. Aegon II is burned and then poisoned, ending up dying. By the way, again, massive spoilers here. Aemon dead by a leaping Daemon Targaryen at the Battle Over the God's Eye. Daron the Daring dies inside a burning tent. So burning to death. Not great. Helena Targaryen either by suicide or throwing herself or being thrown into the spikes outside of Maegor's Holdfast after Blood and Cheese. It's also rumored in Fire and Blood that she and Alicent were essentially given over to the brothel houses after the fall of King's Landing by Rhaenyra and uh, I guess raped over and over again. I guess we'll see the truth of that in the show, which one actually happened, but uh, not great for her. Allison's grandson, Maylor, is ripped to shreds by a mob at Bitterbridge. Her other grandson, Jaharis, is murdered by blood and cheese, his head, his head carved off. Her granddaughter, Jahara, is likely murdered by Unwin Peak in a similar way to home. She supposedly leapt onto the spikes outside Mago's Holdfast, but it's heavily, heavily suggested that it was murder by Unwin Peak at the end of the dance. We also, I'm not sure if we're going to see this character, but Allison actually has a named brother, Wayne Hightower. He was put second in charge of the gold cloaks at the beginning of the dance as a trying to negate the effect of Damon's loyalists in the gold cloaks. But Gwen ends up being murdered by commander of the Gold Cloaks, Luthor Largent, during the fall of King's Landing. Luthor kills Gwen Hightower, then opens the gates and lets in the Black's forces. If we're talking about Otto, Otto's lineage, all of them are dead by the end of the dance, except for Alicent, who herself dies a couple years later in 133 AC from winter fever. They're gone. That's the Hightower line of the Targaryen family exterminated completely gone sort of there is actually one descendant of Otto Hightower that survives the end of the dance 
And it's an uns, it's an unusual one and not one that people think about too much, but it's Eamon One-Eyes Child with Alice Rivers. If that's actually Eamon's child, that is the one surviving member of his family. So yeah, things really go badly for Otto's side and they go pretty badly for the main line of the High Towers as well. As I said, Orman's dead along with Brynden and Hobart. There's kind of a weird thing that happens during the dance where before the fall of King's Landing or during it, I forget exactly which, but the High Tower has basically stealed all the crown's gold and hold on to a large portion of it. They're forced to give it back at the end of it. Miles Hightower, the other cousin, is pretty unhappy that he can't keep his stolen gold. Damn, buddy. And things kind of go sideways for the Hightowers for quite a while. Orman's 15-year-old son, Lionel Hightower, takes the lordship and then tries to marry his widowed stepmother, Sam Tarley. It sounds like the plot from a terrible porn, right? <laughs> like, this sounds like something you'd see on, like, something brassers or something like this is something ted cruz would be caught watching on twitter what was that thing he watched it was it was like stepmother porn or something like that that he like retweeted or put on his timeline it's like that it's like what are you doing george and it seems ready made for it but of course it's not as weird as it sounds because sam tarley is not related to lionel by blood they're only two years separated and sam tarley didn't have any children with ormond hightower so i mean it's weird but it's not as weird as it could be, I guess. House, I mean, the Fire and Blood gives a few reasons why this ended up happening. The first thing is that it's said that as soon as Sam Tarley arrived in Old Town, that Lionel Hightower instantly tried seducing her, which supposedly didn't work. But given how they end up together, maybe it did work at the time. Mushroom's account of Lionel and Sam is that Sam Tarley seduced Lionel but then only agreed to actually do the deed if he surrendered to Coralie Sprayon, which honestly would probably work on a horny teen. Like I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if that's actually what happened. I imagine that really would work. As I said previously, the high towers were attacked a lot by the Tarleys during the war and they had stayed loyal to Rhaenyra's side the whole way. So you could see this as sort of a marriage alliance to end the hostilities in the reach to formally bring a close to the high towers supporting the greens but it's also very very likely that this was just like a horned up teen that really wanted to bone his stepmother yeah the other story we get is a munkin says that it had to do with lionel's younger brother garmund who had been held captive at high garden that the tyrells had basically said end the war now render and or else we're going to kill garmund and combined with the two things lionel i i eventually does give up and says all right war's over sorry guys all right can i marry sam tarley now well it turns out no he can't marry sam tarley because the high sefton decides that it's gross and weird and he calls it a form of incest which is like what the hell it's it's i mean it's i guess it's kind of weird but it's like it's not incest they're not related in any way but i guess it's kind of weird like the high septon tried to essentially say you can't marry because I think it's gross for you to be trying to marry your stepmother. Doesn't end up working. Lionel basically gives him the finger and keeps Sam Tarley as his paramour, having six daughters with her. Also, at one point, the, the high septon apparently tried to order Sam to join the Silent Sisters, and then she showed up and told him where he could stick his crystal crown straight up the keister. It's a sin to marry your father's widow, is it? Because I, I'm pretty sure... Like Edward married his brother's widow or would have been widow. Like that kind of stuff happens. I don't know. I, th it, I guess it's kind of weird, but uh, whatever. 
Well, she's not even that much older than than Lionel. As I said, Sam Carly is 17 or 18 and Lionel Hightower is 15 or 16. So they're basically peers. It's not like this was like a cougar going after a teen. They're based, they're based, they're peers. So it's really not that weird. I guess we're, yeah, worth surrendering a city for. All right. I mean, the war is basically over at that point and his brother might have died. So whatever. Eventually this high tower, the high septon ends up dying. A new friendly high septon is elected. And then he says, by the way, the last high septon, he didn't know what he was talking about. You guys can totally marry Sam and Lionel do legitimizing their children. Huzzah. The weird, the weird subplot about the stepmother, widow, son marriage ends. Yay. Eventually Lionel goes on to do, do stuff. But at this point, the high towers are basically out of the news. I guess you would say they, they retire to be less dramatic. Although there is more drama with Sam Tarley. She tries to marry Lionel's younger sister, Bethany to Aegon the third in a double marriage with her own younger sister, Sansara Tarley. So it's such a crazy suggestion. Like Aegon heard Rhaenyra's son with Damon basically is looking for, for his next wife. And Sam Tarley's like, don't just take one wife, take two wives. It'll be great. Apparently she really wanted to give the middle finger to the high septon as much as she could. Basically not caring what they say at all. Obviously Aegon rejects it, but it is kind of a funny suggestion. Well, she wasn't his widow exactly, but it does happen where like brothers will marry the, the widow of their brother and stuff like that. I mean, it's unusual, but it's definitely not incest. It's just kind of weird. But then again, we're talking about Westeros and Targaryen. So is it that weird? No, not really. The other notable outcome of this is the previously younger brother of Lionel Hightower. Talk about Garmond Hightower. He is not killed by the Tyrells. He is returned and later freed. And out of nowhere, he kind of ends up marrying Reyna Targaryen of all people. This is the, the twin daughter of Daemon Targaryen and Lena Valarian. So Bela and Reyna, the ones that ride into court and say, brother, we have your wife for you. The two badasses from the end of the war. That Reyna ends up marrying Garment Hightower of all people. Reyna initially married Corrin Corbray. He died somehow at Runestone. Rip in peace, I guess. Then he married, then she marries Garmin Hightower. This is very likely a political thing as this basically definitely a hundred percent signals the end of the war between Rhaenyra's side of the war between the greens and the greens and the blacks. Like after this, there's, it is done. They have made the marriage alliance. It is over with again. They have six daughters, all of them high towers, by the way, because it's through garment. And actually this came up in the last stream in the comments. And I was thinking about it. I was trying to like solve the problem. Well, it's not really a problem, but it's basically Liness Hightower looks a lot like Daenerys, and so does Alary Hightower. She kind of looks like a Targaryen, and people have for a while tried to figure out where this comes from. I mean, I gave a suggestion that maybe it's like a Maris the Maid thing, that like they are just beautiful by lineage or something like that. George's weird, never-changing, homogenous genetic thing that he has, where characters were somehow look like they did thousands of years earlier, even though that would never actually happen. There have also been suggestions. YouTube just told me to insert an ad. <laughs> That's crazy. It's a pop-up now. It wants me to sh run an ad for you guys. Shut up, YouTube. I'm not doing that. And yeah, and there've been suggestions like maybe they're related to the great empire of the dawn, or maybe they're Valyrians or something like that, but it's actually right here. This is it. This is how the Targaryen look ended up in house Hightower. Reyna marrying Garment. 
clearly this is how it ended up happening. Yeah, maybe they're just hot by, by naturally, but quite clearly, I think this is it. This is the answer. Garmin and Reyna marrying. That's how you get the Targaryen look into the Hightower family. Mystery solved. I did it, guys. Mystery over. No more weird tinfoil theories about how it happened or trying to connect them back to whoever. I did it. It's here. Yeah, I wonder what kind of ad they're going to run right now if I tried to do it. Oh, thanks for the description. 36 wins. Interesting name. So the next time someone brings it up like, hey, why does Liness and the rest of the high towers look like Daenerys? You, you smart, smart viewer, you can go, well, it's because of Reyna and Garmin. Clearly, that's how the Targaryen look got onto the high towers. And it stuck around for a few generations. Problem solved. That's how it happened. Nailed it. And then we get to the interlude, I guess, as it were. After the Dance of the Dragons, the High Towers more or less learn their lesson and step back into the shadows to lick their wounds and try to rebuild after getting their shit kicked in by everybody, especially the rest of the Reach Lords. Well, Allison and their spawn largely spent the social capital the High Towers had spent generations building in a bid for the Iron Throne. And with that gone, the high towers are kind of screwed. They also lost a huge amount of their soldiers and knights. They lost a vast sum of money trying to wage war, and they managed to increase hostilities with the faith. Normally, they're partners in crime with Lionel Hightower and Sam Tarley. So things don't go well for them for a while. Also, it reconfirmed their fears that given the chance, the rest of the Reach Lords would instantly knock them over and take the old town from them if they could. So they turtle back up and try to rebuild the way that they have for generations and write off Otto and Ormond as power-hungry dicks who didn't know what they were doing. Next up, we get the rise of the Tyrells. And this is the other thing that kind of informs why the Hightowers kind of just disappear from the narrative for quite a while. Hang on a second. All right, there we go. After the Dance of the Dragons, the Tyrells go from upjump servants to the gardeners into fully-fledged reach overlords of the reach. Lionel Tyrell's regents had effectively navigated the Dance of the Dragons with basically no losses to themselves at all. And they used their vassals as basically tools against the high tower power grab and ended up kicking their most powerful vassal back into line without raising a single troop themselves, which is actually pretty impressive. The Dance of the Dragons is a, a big win for the Tyrells. They also notably refused to help Aegon II when the Tullys marched on King's Landing, which again effectively ended the dance. Lionel's mother comes up with some excuse like, oh, he's just a boy. He can't possibly go to war. But like they could. Just because you have regents doesn't mean nobody can lead an army. They just basically didn't get involved and basically used the high tower strategy back against them and weakened the high towers for generations. At the end of the war, they actually managed to increase the their relationship, the, the advantage they have over the high towers with a, a very interesting edict. In exchange for giving back a garment and officially surrendering the war, they get the high towers to promise that they will not go to war without High Garden's approval. You see, it had been kind of the other way around, where the gardeners had paid for the loyalty of the high towers by saying, We'll protect you in any war. But the Tyrells flipped it and made it so that they removed their ability to declare war on their own. Even though they usually don't, it's, it's a pretty slick political move over them. And basically, last to the current day, the Hightowers do not go to war again. And that's kind of it for the Hightowers at the end of, from the end of the Dance of the Dragons to A Song of Ice and Fire proper. And this thing's putting weird shadows on my face. Hang on a second. 
keep trying to fix it. Tyrell's supremacy. Yeah. But the rise of the Tyrells is contrasted with the fall of the high towers. They go in opposite directions as they increase in power. Their most powerful vassals end up getting basically wrecked. So with that, let's go to a song of ice and fire proper. Somebody asked the question earlier on in the stream, like, do they actually appear in the main story? And like, sort of kind of the first character. Well, the first character we hear about from house Hightower, I believe is Gerald Hightower, the white bull. And then we hear about Lord Layton Hightower. So Layton is the current Lord of old town. You, you don't really hear too much about him. There's not really much interesting at first. He just kind of went to tourneys and jousts in his youth, not doing a whole lot. The main thing that Layton is the first thing we know about him is that he tried to arrange a lot of power marriages for his children mostly centered around the reach where he himself was married to Rhea Florent at least, at least for a while. I think he's had something like four wives. Hang on a second. Let me double check that one. Yeah. Layton has had four wives. So who knows which children goes to which wife? It's unclear if any of them are Rhea's and who the other three women were typical. The family tree ends up, ends up not being a thing for the high towers, but he has a bunch of children. So he has his eldest son and his heir, Baylor Hightower, otherwise known as Breakwind. This is the guy that was going to marry Ellie of Dorne until he farted in Oberon, made a joke, and ended up blowing up the re- the politics of Westeros. This is like the, what's it called? Like the fart heard around the world. If Baylor Hightower does not rip one in front of Oberon, it's very likely that Rhaegar and Elia never marry, and Robert's Rebellion probably doesn't happen. So way to go, Baylor. Really messed that one up. Baylor ends up marrying Rhonda Rowan. Boy, that one sounds familiar. Yeah. Yeah, his current wife is Rhea Florent, but who who knows about the other ones? Then you get Alary Hightower. She's married to Mace Tyrell. So the, all the Tyrell children, we're talking Marjorie, Loris, Willis, Garland, they're all half Hightower. We're not really going to cover them because their identity is more centered around the Tyrells, but to sort of keep in the back of your mind that they are they are high towers. They do consider Layton is their grandfather. These are their kin. That that marriage was particularly important. Getting the Lord of the Reach to marry Layton's daughter creates a firm alliance that will be hard to cut in twain. You also have Denise married to Desmond Redwine. Not, as far as I know, a cousin to Paxter Redwine. Not one of his sons or anything like that. You have Alisane Hightower married to Arthur Ambrose. They're the ant guys. Neat Gunthor. Hightower married to Jane Fossaway. Layla married to John Cups. I've never heard of John Cups. It was just in the wiki. And then you have Ness Hightower, who was married to Jorah Mormont, although no longer is, is now married to a slave trader out of Lys. Way to go on that one. So there, and then there are the three unmarried children. You have Garth, Malor, and Humphrey. So quite a lot of kids for Leighton Hightower. Ness and Jorah are the most explosive of the pairs. We'll talk about Laness in a little bit. But you, Somebody in chat just pointed that out that, yeah, Leighton went around and basically made a lot of power marriages throughout the reach, particularly with the Tyrells. But you're looking at the Rowans, you're looking at the Redwines, you're looking at the Ambrose, the Fossaways. Those are major houses within the reach. So effectively, he's running back the Hightower strategy of making sure he has a lot of political alliances that fall back on for, for defense, which is normally what they do. Oh, we just hit a hundred likes. So we're going to go ahead and do a giveaway. Also, thank you. Kraken Queen 50 PLN. Great stream as always. Tinfoil, the Septon, 
The prophecy of the Septon that says the high tower should own sorry Sept burn and fall in case the high towers oppose Aegon can actually referring to young Griff. It very well could. Also, possibly the other Aegon Targaryen, the one who's got a new show, the snow show. But thanks for that. And let's go ahead and do a giveaway here. Open up Nightbot. Uh, so this is going to get a free t-shirt from my Threadless shop. You'll get a code in order to in order to buy one for yourself or whatever. It's, it's a $20 off coupon, so you can get whatever you want from it for with $20 off, but it happens to cover the cost of a shirt. If you want to be entered, type the word vigilance into the chat. Hang on a second. Oh yeah, and good call from Sasa K. If you already want a shirt, especially recently, try not to enter. Try to give it to some new folks. Yeah, I chose a hard word this time. Vigilance. That I didn't mention this, but Vigilance is the, the Valyrian steel sword that belonged to Ormond Baratheon that was lost after the second battle of Templeton and has never been found again. But so that's what Vigilance is. That's why I'm saying it. And let's see here. It's 320. So we'll roll it at 325. Yep. Type Vigilance to win. There you go. I hope I didn't just enter myself. That would be embarrassing. I chose a hard word this time. Yeah. One of the many houses that lost the Valyrian steel have never found it again. Be a fun thing to try and track down if it popped up somewhere else. If somebody else got an unusual Valyrian steel sword after the Dance of the Dragons, it might be Vigilance itself. Also, if we get to 125 likes, I'll go ahead and throw on a different funny hat. One that will not annoy me with the shadows it's casting on my face. So of Leighton's children, the Garth, the unmarried child is called Graysteel. He's like the knight of the family. Humphrey, we don't really know that much about. Mostly, the only thing we know about him is he's not in Old Town. He got sent to List to find Lanes in order to try and get a fleet to defend against a Euron Greyjoy. And then, of course, there's Melora the Mad Maid, who gets so many mentions in theories, it is kind of insane. And the quote about the Mad Maid, this is literally her only mention in the books. And it's one of the few things we actually learn about Lord Leighton as a personality. This comes from Sam's chapter, Aboard the Cinnamon Wind. This is the captor of the Huntress, I believe. He says, to be sure, Lord Leighton's locked up, locked atop his tower with the Mad Maid, insulting books of spells. Might be he'll raise an army from the deeps. Or not. Baylor's building galleys. Unthor has charge of the harbor. Garth is training new recruits. And Humphrey's gone to list the higher cell sales. If he can winkle a proper, proper fleet out of his horror of his sister, we can start paying back the Iron Man for, with some of their own coin. Till then, the best we can do is guard the sound and wait for the bitch queen in King's Landing to let Lord Paxter off his leash. That is quite a quote from the captain of the Huntress, but that basically gives you a rundown of what the High Towers are currently doing. Melora and Leighton up in the High Tower. His sons are either currently building further defense or off trying to get a fleet. His daughters are unmentioned except for Lanes, and Alary is obviously doing Tyrell things at this point. That's been her most her most significant contribution to the story. Curious if Humphrey ends up tangled up in all the piracy going off in the Stepstones or missed up or mixed up with the Golden Company fleet or ever returns. Good question. We don't really know. Humphrey has, has like a one sentence line and that's it. Vigilance in the chat. Type the word vigilance. You can see people spamming it if you want to win yourself a t-shirt. The other thing we learn about Leighton is kind of what I mentioned that he's known for making power marriages for his children. Although the one marriage he did refuse was Tywin tried to marry, Ty marry Tyrion to one of Leighton's daughters. Leighton was insulted and basically told Tywin to go screw. That is the most characterization we get from Leighton Hightower. 
other than his staying in a tower and maybe studying spells. That he has disappeared up the high tower is kind of strange, and it's one of those things that fans have been trying to solve for a while, like what the hell's going on with Leighton. Ten years after, before the start of the Song of Ice and Fire, Leighton disappeared up the high tower, locked him inside, and has not come out of the high tower since. He's left it to his sons to manage the day-to-day of Old Town, and that's basically been it. The quote is he prefers preferring to rule his city from the clouds. Um, and again, it's inferred by the captain of the Huntress that the gossip around Old Town is that Leighton is studying spell books and like trying to raise an army from the deep. Not really sure what that means. And that it's him and Melora the Mad Maid who are trying to do magic of some sort within the high tower. I think it's one of those things that gets a lot more play because it's so weird, but it's really just like a one-off thing and it just kind of even the captain the huntress is just kind of like well this is the gossip but i don't no one really knows nobody's seen him in quite some time although two members of the community that have put a lot of effort in trying to figure out what Leighton is up to is bookshelf stud and poor quentin bookshelf stud wrote the essay ripples in the dreamscape ripples in the dreamscape and poor quentin wrote the eldritch apocalypse talking about euron's upcoming attack on old town And both of them kind of lean into the idea that there's a lot of magic happening in and around Old Town or there will be in the future. In particular, there's the weird line from Patchface where he says, I will lead it. We will march into the sea and out again. Under the waves, we will ride seahorses and mermaids will blow seashells to announce our coming. Oh, oh, oh. And along with the suggestion from the World of Ice and Fire that like there's a connection between the fused stone storp fortress on battle island underneath the high tower and that Leighton is supposedly studying spells this has led people to wonder if george is signaling that maybe Leighton actually is a wizard and that he has learned magic maybe he's a magician himself because there's few things wizards and magicians love more than towers and he is literally up a tower like it's hard not to look at Leighton High Tower and not think of characters like Saruman. Pretty sure Merlin had a tower, Sauron as well, with the glass candles being so close to the seeing stones from Lord of the Rings. It's pretty much guaranteed if there's a wizard in a fantasy story, he has a tower, and Leighton has a tower. So it's not accidental that George is doing this, especially with the suggestion from the captain of the Huntress that maybe there's literally magic that will be coming out of Old Town and the High Tower itself. And that gets into the his partner in crime, apparently, Melora the Mad Maid. We literally know nothing about her. Only thing we know about her is that she is... Oh, let's go ahead and roll this baby. Let's see who wins. Matthew, congratulations. You, sir, have won yourself a free shirt from my Threadless shop. You can send me a DM on Twitter, at the Joe Magician, or you can send me an email at my... at askjoemagician at gmail.com. I'll send you a code and... You, sir, can get yourself a sweet-ass waffle thingy. Way to go, buddy. Never slam that like button. 125, gonna throw on another silly hat. Back to Melora. We really know nothing about her, other than that she's called the Mad Maid, and that she might be studying magic, but maybe not. And that she also has not left the High Tower in, like, 10 years. Or longer. But the ambiguity of her character, and the weirdness around the High Tower itself, and the suggestions of magic, have led many in the fandom to decide that Melora the Mad Maid is the secret to so many theories and the key to everything and a huge piece of the story, even though she's literally a one-line character in the in the books that we have not seen on the page at all. Gotta love the Sun Ice and Fire fandom sometimes. In some ways, 
If there's a weird character with a tantalizing possibility and basically no canon material about them, that sometimes makes for a very fruitful near fan fiction theories because you can make Melora be whatever you want because we basically know nothing about her. That tends to happen quite a bit. So, but let's go through the possibilities of like what's actually going on with Melora the Mad Maid and her magic studying. So one possibility is that she's actually mad, i.e. insane or suffers from mental illness and that she's being sheltered from the world to prevent embarrassment to the rest of the Hightower family. Maybe Leighton is looking after her. Totally possible. It's happened to the Targaryen family and it's happened in real history. For instance, a Queen Elizabeth's first cousins, Catherine and Nerissa Bowes Lion, basically had this, had that done to them. Both of them were bo- were mentally handicapped, I believe. And despite being first cousins to the Queen of England, they were declared dead, but were actually kept alive for decades in a mental asylum kept out of the public life. So it's it's not weird. Well, I guess it is weird, but it's not common for powerful families to try and hide members of their family who have mental illness or are developmentally challenged. It wouldn't like that can totally happen. Yeah, it was talked about in The Crown. But yeah, keep that as a possibility. It is totally possible that she is basically an incapable person and she's being kept out of the public eye for that reason. Second possibility, maybe Melora has prophetic visions and like Daron the Drunkard, the visions of the future possibly being related to the Targaryens through Reyna and Garmond has given her dragon dreams or something like that. And the effect of these dreams and prophetic visions has basically rendered her incapable of functioning that's basically what happens to daron the drunkard egg's older brother where he basically drinks himself to death because he can't deal with the strain of seeing the future all the time totally possible for melora oh yeah also the kennedys the kennedys did that yep did that to one of their daughters not cool totally possible prophecies a thing in the song of ice and fire the high towers are rumored to be magical quite possible they're related through the targaryens through reyna that one could make sense third possibility Melora is interested in scholarship and learning, and given Westeros and Old Town's view on women's education and women's rights, which is basically they don't exist, that could earn her the title of being quote-unquote mad for trying to be an intellectual in a society that doesn't value women. We see that from Alyssa or Sorella Sand from Oberyn's, one of Oberyn's bastard daughters, that she basically has to pretend to be a man in order to be accepted to the Citadel. Perhaps it's the same thing for Melora. She wanted to be like a maester or something like that, and she got labeled as mad for it. Also, if she's particularly interested in the higher mysteries, the rumors about her and Leighton studying spell books would lean that way. Basically, anyone that studies the quote-unquote higher mysteries in Westeros is labeled as kind of crazy anyway, so it would make a lot of sense. A fourth possibility, maybe Melora is just a bit weird, and she's introverted and doesn't really like seeing people, and it's not really like a mental handicap or anything like that. She just is like, She's a a sheltered person who doesn't like being around people, so she doesn't. Like, that is not uncommon, to be honest. Like, there are a lot of people like that. Just because you're rich and powerful doesn't mean it can't happen to you, too. So, there's definitely a possibility there. Or she's maybe she's really spoiled and she thinks of herself above the commoners and therefore does not want to mingle or be anywhere near them. That kind of thing has definitely happened with royalty or near royalty, too. (laughs) You and Melora are the same. Yeah, maybe. And then the last possibility. Maybe all of the above, or multiple of them. We don't really know. We know nothing about Melora the Mad Maid, only that she is unmarried and somehow a bit weird, possibly mad, and likes magic. She basically just like a normal song of ice and fire, to be honest. Kind of introverted, 
likes books, a little weird, likes magic. That described like half my chat <laughs> to be true. Who knows? He hasn't found a spouse for Melora for some reason. Don't really know. And it's kind of the same thing with Leighton. Like we don't really know a lot about him. The only like time trigger that works in this way is that 10 years before the current story is the Greyjoy Rebellion and the Tourney Atlantis port. So this gets into Lynes Hightower. Obviously, if you guys don't remember the story from the books, after the Greyjoy Rebellion, Tywin Lannister threw a massive tourney at Lannisport, or Robert Baratheon did, in order to celebrate their victory over King Balon. During that tourney, Jorah Mormont, who himself was a hero of the Greyjoy Rebellion, decided to take part despite being a northerner. Northerners don't usually take part in tourneys, but he decided to. And as the tourney is about to start, Jorah Mormont sees Lanes Hightower and thinks he's the, she's the most beautiful woman he's ever seen and asks to wear her favor in the tournament. Ness, for unknown reasons, says yes. Maybe at this time Jorah was much more handsome. Maybe he actually looked like Ian Glenn rather than how he looks in the books, which is very, very different. And says, yes, you can wear my, my favor in the tourney. And then Jorah goes on a jousting spree and ends up winning the whole thing. And at the end of it, he goes to Lord Layton and asks if he can have Lanessa's hand in marriage. And out of nowhere, Leighton Hightower, the power marriage aficionado, says, yeah, sure, you can marry Lanessa. And ends up happening. Kind of weird. Don't really know why Ness and Leighton said yes, although maybe just Leighton said yes because women don't really have a choice in Westeros, unfortunately. Shouldn't Lanessa have come through a dowry? Uh, I guess so. The story, she probably just blew through that. What ends up happening with Lanessa and Jorah, a very too long, didn't read version, the uh, Jorah just basically has a huge speech talking about it, is that Lanessa actually really liked living in Old Town as effectively a princess of a major family. And she thought that living on a windswept island in the far frozen north actually kind of sucked. And she may have liked Jorah, but she didn't like him enough to want to live on Bear Island, which is probably as far away in terms of like culture and environment as you could get from old town. Like they're not even close to the same thing. And she decides that she wants to live kind of the same life she had in old town, but with the Mormons, which is a problem because the Mormons are not very wealthy. So Jorah basically uses up all the money the Mormons have. And then when that's not enough to make Lanes happy, he turns to slavery he tries to slave some poachers in order to make some money. He gets found out. Eddard basically, Eddard Stark declares Jorah's life a forfeit that he's going to kill him, effectively giving Jorah the ability to run away. And Lanes and Jorah flee to Essos. Although the same thing kind of ends up happening there. Jorah doesn't have any money. He also left behind Longclaw, so he can't even sell his Valyrian steel sword. She still wants money. Jorah joins a bunch of sellsword companies to try and make that money. Doesn't make enough. And the, the long story short version of this is Lanes leaves Jorah or the or like any slave trader, I guess. What was his name? Traegar or Molan. And is now his chief concubine and basically the effectively the wife of one of the more powerful men in Lys. Jorah takes this very hard and has a broken heart about it. So I think the reason probably that Leighton agreed to the marriage with Jorah to Lanes is that it's said in the books that a lot of people don't really think too highly of Lanes, that she's probably pretty spoiled, that she's kind of a brat, and she wants to live like a queen, and Jorah couldn't provide that life. 
and that she may not have been happy anywhere. It's very possible that Lionel or that Leighton had been trying to get rid of Liness and found himself unable to. And when Jorah said, I'll marry her, Leighton said, good, take her, get her out of my face. I don't want to deal with her. Totally possible. That kind of thing happens. Like if she were a dude, I, you can imagine that Leighton may have tried to get her to join the Citadel or to join the Night's Watch or something like that. The Silent Sisters, I guess, or to be a Septa wasn't Liness's life. And maybe this is just how Leighton thought about how to get rid of her. And the quotes about Liness are really unkind. For instance, this is from the Mormons. My nephew Jorah brought home a proper lady once, said Lady Mage. He won her an attorney. How she hated that carving. I and all the rest, said Daisy. She had hair like spun gold, that Liness, skin like cream. But her soft hands were never made for acts, nor her teats for giving suck, her mother said bluntly. Kind of a weird insult, but basically saying that Liness didn't, didn't fit in. That's, that's basically the message. Catelyn Stark says the same thing. Catelyn knew of whom they spoke. Jorah Marmont had brought his second wife to Winterfell for feasts, and once they had guested for a fortnight. She remembered how young the Lady Liness had been, how fair and how, how unhappy. One night, after several nights of wine, she had confessed to Catelyn that the North was no place for a high tower of Old Town. So, I think you can look at it both ways. I think you can say, like, probably Leighton just wanted to be done with Liness. She seems like kind of a demanding, kind of spoiled kind of person, but it's also his fault for raising a daughter like that and also like it would totally suck if you were if you lived this lavish life in old town basically treated like a princess and then all of a sudden you're packed up and shipped off to bear island to a culture you're not familiar with with no friends no family and you all of a sudden have to fit into this weird culture you have no idea about liness probably is i don't think you can blame liness for being unhappy about the situation but also doesn't seem like she had a very good reaction to that can kind of go both ways. How are you going to put them back on the farm after they've seen Paris? I guess. I know if I if I were in Lanessa's shoes, I would be pretty unhappy about that situation. Even if she did like Jorah when they first met, he was the hero of the Greyjoy Rebellion. He just won a tourney. She may have gotten swept up in something she didn't really think through. I mean, not uncommon for teenagers. And also, Catelyn makes the point that Lanessa was pretty young when they married. She may have been thinking with not her brain, to say the least. So... I don't really blame Liness for being unhappy. I do blame her for how she expressed that. Kind of shitty, but then again, maybe Leighton shouldn't have done that to her. So there's a lot of blame to go around with Liness. Okay, so we're talking about Liness a lot. So how does this relate to Leighton? It it's it doesn't really like there's nothing about the Greyjoy Rebellion or this marriage of Jorah to Liness that informs why Leighton Hightower would go into the High Tower for ten years and never show up again. Like he barely had anything to do with the Greyjoy Rebellion. He mostly just contributed ships. It doesn't really seem like they even took part in the siege or the raid on Lordsport or anything like that. So it's not like he saw like horrors of war and then like his mind broke or something like that. It doesn't really make sense. And if if he's like guilty in some way about Liness, about shipping off Liness, why is he up in the high tower? Don't really make sense. Oh, did I start something in the chat? Yeah, sorry guys. Let's like have empathy for her. It would, it's a pretty terrible situation to find yourself in. Forced marriages suck the whole way around. So uh, this doesn't really answer our question. Like why is, but this is the only thing that's anywhere close to when Leighton went up the high tower. Don't really know what's going on here. Although Lemus does end up playing an important role in the story in that with how things ended with Jorah, she accidentally created the knight that is super devoted to Danny because he reminds, she reminds him of Lemus and in large part, where Danny ended up going 
was because of having Jorah at her side and especially in the beginning. But unfortunately, grew into a weird obsession with the teenager and then tried to make out with her. Didn't end up going well for Jorah, but it is like this weird tourney ends up informing why Jorah is obsessed with Danny and ends up helping her to become who she is today. And then also, of course, there's Longclaw. When Jorah fled the north from Eddard's blade, he left behind Longclaw, which made its way back to Jor, his father in the Night's Watch, who then gave it to John. So the weird butterfly effect with Lynesse Hightower, how she's ended up indirectly impacting two of the primary characters in the story. Yeah, Jorah's a weirdo. His relationship to Danny and Lynesse is both kind of weird, especially with the fact that Danny's much younger than she is in the show. So not cool. All things a bad situation all around. Yeah. All right. So can we even like, I don't think there's a solution to what the hell Layton's doing. Like it doesn't seem to have anything to do with the Greyjoy Rebellion. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with Jorah or Lynesse because maybe this will be more explained if we see him as a character, but we really haven't yet. So that just kind of leads us with the same questions as Melora. They're kind of identical. Has Layton suffered some kind of mental illness, like a mental break in some way that has led to him being paranoid and staying in the high tower all the time like that could happen is it magic or prophecy related like if melora is gifted in prophecy is this like a situation with danis the dreamer and her father anar targaryen where danis told her father about the doom and anar was able to dodge it by moving out of Valyria ahead of time like that would be a cool synergy between the two stories there's also obviously the glass candles that are in old town maybe they have one of them and Leighton has just been sitting there watching the glass candle all the time. That could be it. There's also the suggestions of all the magic about the high towers with obviously Paramir the Twisted and his warlocks and wizards that used to, that created the Citadel out of suggestions of the high towers being related to the deep ones with the fused stone fortress, their magical tower built by Bran the Builder, Leighton and his spell books calling an army from a deep. Like it's, it's being laid on pretty thick by George that there's something weirdly magical or something strange with Layton that he has not revealed left revealed yet. And that's something that a bookshelf stud and poor Quentin really hit on in their essays where they, they took all these different clues and were like, look, doesn't it seem like something weird and magical? So that to happen with old town centered around Layton. And if this were a story being written by HP Lovecraft, I would a hundred percent agree. Like this is a character from Lovecraft. If it was in Lovecraft's books, I would be like, oh, yeah, of course, he's like dealing with the chaos gods or he he's talking to the deep ones and he's somehow in communication and he has like the Necronomicon and from his tower, he's going to some crazy weird things going to happen. Like 100 percent. If there's a Lovecraft story, that's what Leighton would be doing. But because it's George, I'm not I'm not really sure because he's kept his story more low fantasy than high fantasy. And. A lot of the ideas that are in Ripples in the Dreamscape and the Eldritch Apocalypse are much more higher fantasy. It's a level of magic we haven't seen before in the story. That doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It's just, it would be a subversion of what we've seen so far. Yeah, Wizard in a Tower with a Palantir or a Glass Cantle. Yeah, it's at the very least, it's probably a reference to maybe Saruman, but it could also be a reference to Denethor the steward of Gondor very much could be a steward of Gondor type figure. But again, these are all just like suggestions based on like the vague archetype that Leighton happens to fit. We don't really know anything about him, but there is one thing for certain you can pull from these examples about Leighton. And it's that, that George is essentially creating the idea that Leighton and Melora are above the rest of old town. 
that, that they see sort of the big picture from the top of the high tower, like literally and metaphorically, like, sure, if you rule from above the clouds, you'll miss a lot of the, the details of what's going on in your city. And he obviously has his sons taking care of that. But Leighton is the kind of character that with his characterization or the little we have is like somebody that could be following larger patterns of Westeros or following larger patterns of magical whatever is going on there. And that's more in line with how the high towers operate. They always have a long-term strategy. They take long view. They take these power marriages. They make sure they have political alliances. They use the faith in the maesters in order to help themselves. So like this is typical of the high towers, but it's not typical for them to lock themselves in them. So it's in what, in some ways what Malora and Leighton are rumored to do is typical, but also a little atypical. There's definitely more of a sense of weird magic around the two of them than most high towers. But George has inserted that for some reason. So it'd be weird if he added all this setup about fantasy and magic about the high towers and the high tower itself, and then did nothing with it should be something, but I don't really know what Michael and Emmett both have good ideas on what that might be. I don't, I don't really know. It's really just how far he wants to push the fantasy envelope. Then there's also a Larry in the Tyrells, a Larry Hightower. A Larry is obviously married to Mace Tyrell. Her children are Loris, Marjorie, Garland, and Willis. She hasn't had a particularly big role in the books. She's one of the few Hightowers that has actually showed up. Like we've seen her on the page. She interacted with Sansa. She was part of Elena's little group of schemers that was trying to get her to talk about Joffrey. And that's been more or less the extent of her role in the story. The other major thing she did was after Joffrey was poisoned and died at the purple wedding, she spoke up and tried to convince everyone that actually Joffrey just choked on his pie. Whereas Cersei's like, no, he was poisoned. But since we know that it was Olena who did it, it could very well be a sly move from O'Leary to try and cover for the fact that the poison came from the Tyrells. Other than that, she hasn't really had much of a role. She's tall. She's beautiful. She has silvery hair. Just kind of an, another lady at court. Not really much of a character. Very, very on the periphery. Although her children are very much in the forefront. So maybe there'll be more as Marjorie and Laura continue in their downward spirals, I guess. And again, she she kind of looks Targaryen-esque. If we're looking backwards, the Reyna and Garmond marriage could be responsible for that. It's a very easy way to do it. And then the last member of the high towers that really shows up on the page is oh well, sort of is gerald high tower the white bull the former lord commander of the king's guard it's not clear when exactly gerald high tower became lord commander of the king's guard but it seems to be he's the he's the next named lord commander after duncan the todd's death at Summerhall. so if you're conspiracy minded there's been suggestions in the books that either the maesters or the septons were responsible for Summerhall fearing the return of the dragons and that they, they sabotaged the wildfire, wildfire ritual Egg was trying to do in order to kill him and also kill members of his family. Gerald Hightower is on the Kingsguard at the time, and we've seen it before that sometimes members of the Kingsguard stand aside and do not forget the houses they came from. It would be certainly a twist on his character if Gerald had some part in it, although we're a long way from fi finding out anything about that. George has like four or five planned Dunkin' Egg stories before we ever even get to Summer Hall. So who really knows? In the show, it was Elena. I guess it could be Garland. You're right, Liet. I'm just assuming it's Elena because George wrote that episode for the Purple Wedding. So it'd be weird if he changed it for no reason. I guess Garland doesn't exist. So maybe that could be why. Either one. I believe in the books, Elena does play with her hair in it, So I would guess that was it. But anyway, 
long story short, that's one of the weird underdeveloped parts of Gerald Hightower. Like, did he have a role in Summerhall? That would be kind of strange. Who knows? But it's definitely on the tinfoil side if he had anything to do with it. We don't even really know when he joined the Kingsguard. He's just the next named one after Duncan the Tall, although it's immediately afterwards. So he was on the Kingsguard already. He's known for being a tremendous fighter. He's a great general. He's a man of character. He's called the White Bull. Jamie in particular, Jamie Lannister, has a huge opinion of Gerald Hightower. Holds him up there with Barristan the Bold and Arthur Dane in terms of skill. Oh, super chat from Morley. $10. Thank you, Mora. What do you see House Hightower's role when Euron shows up to cause chaos and raise Krakens? Will they be able to stop Euron from completely destroying Old Town? We're going to get to that in a little bit. I have a, we're going to have to speed through this a little bit. I have to get going in a little bit. So we're going to skip a bunch of, a bunch of stuff. We're probably going to go right into the winds of winter. The long and the short. Long and the short of Gerald Hightower is that people wonder what he was doing at the Tower of Joy. That's where we see him in Eddard's fever dream, where the infamous infamous lines about, I look for you on the trident, we were not there. Gerald then says, Eddard asks him, where were you? He says, far away, or Eris would sit the Iron Throne and our false, false brother would burn the Seven Hells. He also makes note that Wilm Derry was not a member of the Kingsguard and they don't flee. Okay, so... The other major quote from Gerald Hightower is that when Rickard Stark is being burned alive and Brandon Stark is being strangled, Jamie's visibly upset by it. He thinks it's horrifying. And Gerald calms him and says, you are meant to protect the king, not judge him, which is a pretty horrific statement that the king's guard has no role in what their king does. Like they just sort of wipe their hands. They're just bodyguards. They have no responsibility. Jamie obviously disagrees with that. He disagrees with Gerald, and that's why he ends up killing Ares. But the the thing that's very confusing about him is that if Gerald has this massive loyalty to Ares, no matter what he says or does, why wasn't he back at King's Landing? Why did he stay at the Tower of Joy? It's it's a little strange. So I think the way you solve it is that there's a there's a weird line that Gerald says that he he they swore a vow. And that's why they're there in the Tower of Joy. And I think if you kind of put that together, you can probably get the understanding that Arthur Dane Oswell went and Gerald Hightower swore another vow. And they swore to Rhaegar to protect Lyanna Stark and eventually Jon Snow, no matter who showed up. I think that's the only way it makes sense and that he had become dissatisfied at that point with Ares because he makes the point. If I was there, Ares would have died, would not would still be alive. Therefore, that he's not there implies that it's because he's allowing Ares to die and that he wants Rhaegar to be king instead. Like that would make some sense. There's also other situations where Gerald did kind of the same thing, like the defiance at Duskendale. It's Barristan who runs in to save Ares, not Gerald. He's supposedly outside with Tywin, just sort of waiting for Ares to die. So I think that could be what was going on there. Otherwise, it's hard to understand why the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard wouldn't go back to guard his king. Like, royal family members can order them around, but they always defer to the king above everyone else. If Ares said come back, then as duty-bound as Gerald feels, then he should have. That he's not is probably indicative that there was a switch in loyalty from him, perhaps to Rhaegar as the new king and then Jon afterwards. I think that's what's going on there. Otherwise, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And that out of the way, let, let's talk about the winds of winter and what's going on here. Uh, Morally asked about that in her super chat. So we kind of talked about it. We, we've covered it a little bit already. But the main, 
the main thing that's happening is that Euron and the Ironborn are raiding the Reach, and in particular, they seem lined up to go right after the High Tower. Again, Bookshelf Stud and Poor Quentin talked about this in their essays. That the the crux of those is that Euron is going to invade Old Town, sack it, and then do something horrible magically, like a giant blood sacrifice or something, and it's going to fundamentally change the rest of Song of Ice and Fire using all the deaths in Old Town as like fuel for it. What we know about Old Town at the moment is that they are aware the Ironborn are everywhere. We heard about how they are building new ships, they are training new troops, they are redoubling the defenses, they are aware that Euron is on the way. They know he's raided the Shield Isles, they know he's taken and killed a lot of lesser lords along the coast, and they're scared of it. And although it's said that Leighton is still in the high tower, he's obviously giving out orders. So it's not like he's probably not incapacitated. He's just in the high tower for some reason. Euron has made this clear that this is what's happening. It's also in the forsaken, the winds of winter sample chapter that they mention old town by name. The ironborn know that the high towers are readying for war and they're even aware of where they're going, which is kind of terrifying. Euron at this point has sort of declared war on all anyone having anything to do with like religion and learning he has captured priests of different faith he has captured septons he has captured maesters and he's doing horrible things to them he's doing he's forcing them to engage in cannibalism he's torturing them he's cutting out their tongues he's like tying them to the masts of ships so it really seems like euron as a character has decided he's going to burn down i don't even like infrastructure of belief in the world itself he started with the shield isles we saw him what he did to the hewitts we saw in the forsaken they captured another castle and they hung all the inhabitants of it there's a weird scene where they walk into a hall or something like that and all the the previous owners are basically hanging from ropes from the ceiling pretty terrifying yeah he killed the warlocks out of karth or some of them stole their shade of the evening he's been basically high on drugs the entire time on hallucinogens and we know from the uh, the Winds of Winter sample chapters and what's at the end of the Dance of Dragons that the Ironborn have moved on from the Shield Isles and are basically raiding everywhere they can find along the southern coast, but staying away from the arbor itself, like the Red Wine Holdings in Old Town, but attacking everything else. So it kind of seems like Old Town is pretty fucked in the Winds of Winter, to say the least. George has also notably removed all of their different defenses that they normally have. So for instance, the Redwine fleet, which would normally be there to beat back the Ironborn, are gone. They're, they've been, I think they were at Dragonstone, and last I heard, they are moving through the step zones to make their way back to the Arbor to defend themselves, but they haven't made it yet. So that fleet isn't there to repel the Ironborn. Or if it is, it might show up late. Normally you would have the Reach and the Tyrell armies to march in and defend Old Town and the rest of the the rest of the Reach. Unfortunately, Mace Tyrell has removed most of the Tyrell and Reach armies and he's planted them outside King's Landing as a threat to sack the city if Marjorie isn't freed by the High Sparrow and Cersei. So the bulk of the Reach armies are too far away to help. And Old Town itself realizes that they don't really have enough troops trained or boats to repel Euron's invasion. As we heard that they're training new troops, which means they're not ready now, and they're building new boats, which means they'll be inexperienced and likely have novices captaining them. 
boy, that looks like it sucks. So it seems like George is setting up Old Town to be sacked, I would say, that Euron is probably going to succeed in, in at least taking Old Town for some time. But I don't know if he's going to hold it permanently. Like as soon as the Red Wines show up, they're probably screwed. If the Reachmen march back in time, they'll be able to free the city. But it doesn't really seem like the High Towers have the ability to do it themselves. And most notably, he has parked Samuel Tarly in Old Town as the POV to see it. This isn't something he wants to put off page. He wants to put it in your face. And it seems like it's going to be a carnival of horrors, to say the least. Euron has really buried the needle on horrible things he's doing to characters, especially in the Forsaken. What he did to Falia Flowers, what he did to the Hewitts, what he's done to Aaron, what he's done to the priests and the, the Septons and the Maesters. He is delighting in physical torture and causing as much harm and hate as he can in the world and just murdering people left and right. So that's kind of where we're going. That's kind of the defenses of Old Town seem ready made to be cracked by the Ironborn. And George has sort of drawn this comparison before. When he imagines the High Tower, he thinks of the Library of Alexandria, the famous one that was burned by Julius Caesar. So that's kind of like Chekhov's High Tower, I guess, or Chekhov's Library, that the Citadel is probably going to be burned to the ground or large parts of it. He's already done that already. Like the Winterfell Library is burned partially in the assassination attempt on Bran. A lot of the books at the Castle Black are falling apart and there's nobody to remake them. There's a general sense of loss of knowledge across the across the story. And it seems like George created the High Tower in the and the Citadel to destroy them at some point. Kind of like the wall. You don't make a 700-foot wall in a story unless you're planning to destroy it. You don't make a giant lighthouse and a massive library that look like Alexandria if you're not planning on having them sacked. So that's probably going to suck. We're probably going to see this through Sam Latari's eyes. And there's also kind of a, a small thing that people don't, that people in the story don't realize is probably dooming them. And actually morally just said it, Jack and Hagar is in Old Town. He's been pretending to be Pate the novice. And we know that Balon Greyjoy was likely was killed by a, by a faceless man, probably Jack and himself. And now he's in Old Town with a previous relationship with Euron possibly still working for him because it's really unclear what he's doing there. So it seems like in all ways, Old Town's going to get sacked. Again, as I talked about, poor Quentin and Bookshelf Stud make the case that this is going to be a massive blood sacrifice and it's going to lead to a high fantasy ramping up in the story as the others start to attack. That Euron is going to be like the embodiment of the Night's King south of the wall. There's also been suggestions that like Euron might blow like the Horn of Winter from atop the high tower and that will cause the wall to fall. I don't really know about that one. I don't think he's aware that Sam has the Horn of Winter, if that is the Horn of Winter, and why blowing it from the high tower would cause the wall to fall. That'd be kind of a weird, be a weird thing to do, especially because I talked about in the Horn of Winter episode that John has blown the Horn of Winter if that's it and nothing has happened. But I'm not going to rule it out. There's so much general sense of magical weirdness going on around Euron and Leighton, the high tower, and that whole area that like something should happen, right? something i don't know on a on a more grounded level like what's going to happen in terms of old town itself I think the sack of astapor on a much larger scale we saw that through the eyes of quentin martell we're going to see it again through sam's eyes now except it's going to be old town itself and euron's particular focus on maesters and septons and all and his 
basically embarrassing High Lords is really not going to go well with the sack of Old Town. Like we're talking that it's very likely we're going to see Leighton, Melora, Baylor, Garth, and Gunthor probably all die and maybe disgraced. Like we saw from the Hewitts, Euron forced Lord Hewitt, Lord Hewitt's wife and daughters to affect to serve the Ironborn nude and then basically turn them into salt wives and probably a lot of rape. And then he ended up murdering Lord Hewitt and he did the same thing in some other castles. So imagine that, but probably even more extreme for what Euron's planning to do to the high towers. It's I would be surprised if we don't see multiple high towers like hanging from the high tower itself or the walls of Old Town. George really likes that imagery he's put into a lot of his books. So I would be I would suggest that's what's going on. Oh, super chat from Chris Batista, $10. Thank you, buddy. So glad to catch you live. Last show I saw was two years ago. I'm enjoying your videos while covering from an injury. Keep up the great work. You're the best. Well, while we get better, Chris, appreciate it. I think that's kind of where we're going to leave off here. There's not really too much else to say. Seems ready made that all time will fall. Euron's going to do some horrible, horrible things. Maybe it'll lead to some magic. Maybe it won't, but it's going to be very terrible to read. I'd imagine Sam's going to survive. I don't know about Gillian, Eamon, Steelsong. Um, probably a lot of the maesters are going to be killed along with the Septons and the Septas and stuff like that. It will probably be your least favorite chapter to read in the Winds of Winter when it happens or multiple ones. Like it will be a horror show. So if you like that kind of stuff, hey, going to sound great. I'm not particularly looking forward to it, although the implications could be interesting for the story in general. So I think that's probably it for the High Towers for now. I want to thank everybody that sent in Super Chats. Maura Lee, Kieran Grant, Kraken Queen, Chris Bautista, and then the from PayPal, Danny McKay. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for new subscribers. If you guys want to support the channel, make sure you like and subscribe. And leave a comment below. Got a bunch of new videos in the uh, in the magazine that I'm, I'm working on at the moment. We're going to be gearing up a lot for House of the Dragon. Definitely something about probably the snow show coming out hopefully soonish. And if you want to support me monetarily, I guess, you can go to patreon.com slash geomagician. If you go at the $5 level, you get access to all the patron-only content, including the Dying of the Light, George's first book that I've been analyzing. Also, you can go to my Threadless shop, threadless.com slash geomagician, and pick yourself up some, some ass waffle gear, I guess, if you enjoy it. Look for new stuff coming out of there, too. Me and Mallory have some cool ideas in mind. But anyway, I have to get going. I gotta go see a movie. I'm running a little bit late. I will see you guys next time and enjoy your 4th of July weekend if you're in America.